everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima and Co. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and professionals in the field. I'm your host today, Grace Shadid, rising second year medical student at SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Amy Chen. Dr. Chen has an extensive resume, an incredible body of research, and has been recognized for numerous awards throughout her career, including most recently receiving the 2022 American Head and Neck Society, Margaret J. Butler, Outstanding Mentor of Women in Head and Neck Surgery Award at the Combined Otolaryngology Spring Meeting. Dr. Chen is the Willard and Lillian Hackerman Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Emory University School of Medicine. She's also the Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the Department of Otolaryngology at the Emory University School of Medicine. And she is also the Director of Endocrine Surgery in the Department of Otolaryngology at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Chen has been working as a board-certified otolaryngologist since 1999, and her clinical expertise is in thyroid cancer and head and neck endocrine surgery. Dr. Chen is the founder and director of both the Thyroid Multidisciplinary Tumor Conference and the Head and Neck Multidisciplinary Tumor Conference. She was elected to the board of directors of the American Thyroid Association. She also leads the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Division of the American Head and Neck Society. She is a member of the American Academy of Otolaryngology and is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American Head and Neck Society. She also serves on the board for Partnership for Southern Equity. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to be speaking with you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Of course. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So could you just begin by telling me a little bit about your path into otolaryngology? Certainly. Uh, I think like many situations, it's not a smooth path. And for me, this was a bit circuitous in that when I started medical school, I thought I wanted to do pediatrics. And with my first rotation in pediatrics, I realized very quickly that that was not the field for me. And I've always wanted to do surgery. So I decided that I would do kind of the biggest, baddest kind of surgery there was. And at that time, it was cardiothoracic surgery. And um, I was doing an elective in the ICU in the cardiac surgery ICU at Hopkins at my medical school, when the intern who was actually an otolaryngology resident, but was doing his internship, Dr. Bevan Yu, told me, you know, Amy, you should really look at otolaryngology. And I really had no idea what that specialty was. Bevan was the one who introduced me to the field and I did an elective in it, and I really liked it. I like it because it covers the gamut of males, females, and everyone in between, all ages from prenatal uh, children all the way up to elderly. And we have a great balance of outpatient and inpatient experiences. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I can definitely relate as well. Um, one of the things that interests me about ENT is the opportunity to treat, uh, patients from, from infancy and, uh, all the way until they're, until they get older. Um, so I can definitely relate to that as well. What specifically was it about endocrine surgery that interested you? So again, this is another (laughs) unexpected path. 
uh, during residency, we were assigned to do uh, head and neck oncologic surgery at MD Anderson as a fourth year resident, I believe. At that time, I thought I was going to do pediatric otolaryngology. And the main reason for that was because I had a great role model, Dr. Lori Olms, uh, who I just adored, and I just wanted to be just like her. And because of that, I thought I wanted to be a pediatric otolaryngologist. And so I actually went through a whole process of looking at different fellowship positions. And uh, before I started my MD Anderson rotation on July 1, I thought that I would just get it out of the way because this was the year for me to apply for fellowships and head and neck was not going to be the one that I was going to do. But very soon thereafter, when I was at MD Anderson, I was with Dr. Gepfert, uh, Dr. Byers, and the fellow at that time was Dr. Jeff Myers, who is now the current chair of head and neck surgery at MD Anderson. And I think that Dr. Gepford and Dr. Myers both played a very instrumental role in my love for head and neck surgery. It was there at MD Anderson that I really learned how to enjoy and also appreciate the intricacies of the surgical field of head and neck surgery. There's a profound amount of counseling that needs to happen before we get the patient to entrust us with their oncologic care. And that discussion can be very difficult in terms of navigating all the different types of treatment, as well as explaining all the different consequences that could happen. And finally, there are some options where there is no treatment and therefore those conversations are quite difficult. And I like the challenge, I liked the intimacy of those conversations. And I also really, really loved the challenge of doing complex head and neck surgery. And therefore I changed my mind and uh, pursued head and neck surgical oncology fellowship. Now my transition to endocrine surgery occurred much, much later. I developed a love for thyroid and parathyroid surgery. Again, because of the intricacies of care, there are a lot of nuances of whether we take someone to surgery or not, or whether we do observation. And I really wanted to make a impact on not just our patients here at Emory, but also on our resident education regarding these fields. And therefore I uh, elected to really focus on endocrine surgery about 10 to 12 years ago. Uh, so it's been about, I would say, less than half of my career because I've been in practice for 30 years. But it has really been very, uh, I, I've really enjoyed working with many of the specialties that come together for endocrine surgery. It's been very fulfilling. And the surgery has also been very challenging. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. And at the end there, you sort of 
are alluding to what my next question was going to be, but, um, you know, you talked about the interdisciplinary care that is required for the patients that you're seeing. Can you just talk a little bit more about your emphasis on a multidisciplinary approach to cancer care um, and what that means for you and what that means for your patients? Certainly. When I came to Emory 21, 22 years ago, that was my big impetus really to establish multidisciplinary cancer care at Emory. Prior to my arrival, there was not a very well-established multidisciplinary care. People were working in silos and this did not benefit the patient as much as all the different disciplines coming together. And I think the reason why I think that's the best approach is that cancer is a multi faceted disease. As we all know, there's various ways of treating the patient with cancer. We can do surgery, we can do medical, we can do chemo, we can do immunotherapy, we can do radiation. But most often, it's usually a combination of all of those. There's also the importance of palliative care and supportive care of rehab of our radiology and pathology colleagues so that we so that we know for sure what the pathology is, as well as the extent of disease from our radiology colleagues. So there's a lot of people who come together with various levels of expertise and experience to formulate the best treatment plan for the patient. And that's why I think multidisciplinary care is extremely important. I think that it's it's the it's a very much a team sport. It's not a relay in that we just hand off the baton from one leg to the next leg until we finish the mile, for example. It really is a concurrent multidisciplinary team approach. And I think the best way I can describe it is if we talk about crew in terms of rowing in a boat. And so this reminds me of the book called The Boys in the Boat. It's about eight men who were chosen to be in this winning gold medal boat in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. They were not the most wealthy. They were not the fastest. And this was during a time when crew was really for the elite. They were all very much leaning on each other's strengths in order to come together as one. And I think that that's what we do in a team approach to cancer care, to the patient who has cancer. We're coming together with all of our strengths, but we're also, we also have blind spots. And that's where our colleagues and our different specialties can help us see those blind spots and say, hey, listen, Amy, this may not be a great surgical candidate because look over here, look at this invasion into the cavernous sinus, for example. Or I could say to my medical oncology colleague, you know, I'm not sure that chemo would be the best option because the patient has a very difficult time of coming in to get their treatment and that's going to be a great burden to them. So that's why I think it really is a team sport and therefore the team approach to multidisciplinary care is really the way to go for our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I really love the analogy that you gave of team members working together. And I think anybody who's had a family member 
who's gone through cancer or any other sort of complex disease can sort of probably relate to a lot of what you talked about in terms of meeting with multiple specialists and and getting opinions from different people and, and using all of those opinions to sort of enhance the care for, for their loved ones. So I think it's great to hear you speak of all of that. And I think um, the analogy that you gave is really going to resonate with a lot of people. Um, so now I wanted to just shift a little bit to, to talk about some of the work that you've done, particularly as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so could you maybe just tell us a little bit about what that work entails for you and what inspired you to focus on DEI initiatives? So thank you for that question, Grace. Um, I think that I've been doing this work my entire life before it was even labeled as diversity, equity, and inclusion work. I was born in Taiwan and came to the United States when I was very young, when I was seven, not knowing a word of English. And I've always felt like I was on the outside looking in and always being not seen, being invisible, being overlooked, and also being a subject of many racial slurs and gender uh, slurs as well. And my upbringing always emphasized that I should persevere, that I should ignore it, that I should suppress these feelings, that I should ignore it and just move on. And my excellence and my work will speak for itself and the successes will follow. But it wasn't until recently that I realized that there's a certain limit to what you can achieve by just grunt work and individual successes. The last mile to achieve leadership or clout or agency has been limited for me and many of my colleagues and friends because of systemic barriers to these successes. And I think that's when I really became engaged. And like for many of us, over the past couple of years with COVID, we've had a lot of opportunities to reflect on what our society has become. The racism, the sexism that has persisted and has really been magnified during this time. The Atlanta spa murders last March in Atlanta really, really shifted a lot of things in my inner core into higher gear. I've always worked on gender work and I've always worked on race issues, but not particularly on Asian racial issues. And with that incident, it really, really shook me up. And I think that one of the reasons was that I remember the initial report from the cop who said that this gunman, this murder was not shooting or trying to kill Asian women because of race or gender. It wasn't hate filled. It was just because he was having a bad day. And I just thought to myself, this is utterly unacceptable that this type of narrative of having a bad day 
can explain and excuse his behavior. These Asian women were totally not seen and were invisible. And to a certain extent, that's the way I have felt for much of my career. And therefore, I really, really started to work more with our Asian colleagues. I learned a lot more about Asian American history. And that has been a complement to the already enormous amount of work I've done with gender diversity in medicine and also with anti-Black racism in medicine. So I think that this added dimension of really acknowledging my race and my background and my heritage and how diverse our diaspora of Asian Americans are, I think that really, really added a different dimension to my DEI work. Yeah, I, I first just, you know, want to take a moment to, to say thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I think, you know, as medical trainees, we are, we're dealing with a lot of stress just at baseline. And I think to think about your entire career and how all of the day-to-day stress that, that we just as medical trainees experience that there was an undercurrent underneath all of that throughout, not just your medical training, but your entire life. And so, you know, that, that really is a lot to be taking on and a lot to be carrying. And I think there's a lot of people outside of medicine and especially within the medical field who I'm sure when they're listening to you speak on this are, are feeling seen and heard because they have a shared experience. And so I just, I think it's incredible that you do speak about it and you share that experience because I think it opens the door for other people to feel as though they can now share their experiences. Um, and I think there's something very powerful about that. Um, though, you know, we should say that it's not right that people are experiencing that. And it's not right that people are experiencing that during their medical training and, you know, being passed over for promotions or not getting residency spots or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, I just think it was, it was very empowering to hear you speak on that. And I thank you for sharing everything that you did. One of the things that I was actually thinking about as you were speaking was for those who are, who, who you're training for people who work with you, I was sort of thinking to myself, gosh, they are so lucky to work with you, to have a leader like you. And one of the things, one of the ways that I actually found you for this interview was seeing uh, that you were the recipient of the Margaret J. Butler Outstanding Mentor of Women in Head and Neck Surgery Award. Could you maybe just talk about what it meant to you to receive this award? Well, it was it was a tremendous honor for me to receive this award uh, from the American Head Neck Society. Uh, this award honors the first woman chair of an ENT department uh, in the United States. And the purpose of this award is to recognize an individual who has done work, um, substantive work in promoting women in head neck surgery. And I think that this is a tremendous honor because when I entered the field, there were few, if any, female head neck surgeons. It made it very, very difficult because many of the issues that I was feeling 
or not, not issues, but feelings that I was having self doubt, wondering if I even fit, wondering if I'm in the right field, wondering if who I should go to, if I should have problems, how do we, I didn't really have anyone to really go, go to. And then it, it also was being the first in a lot of different things. Like I was the first woman faculty member in our department here. I was the first woman professor in my department here. I was one of two women surgeons on the OR board when I got here. And really trying to hold that mantle of all women on my back. Because I knew that if I were to stumble or to complain that, you know, having meetings at this hour will be very difficult for me and my young children, that that might be misperceived as, oh, see, that's why we don't have women in our field. Because look at that. She's just complaining about how she can't make it now. So therefore, I started to do trying to implement a lot of mentoring programs. I organized the uh, Women in Head Neck Surgery subcommittee at the American Head Neck Society that became a full committee. Every single year at the American Head Neck Society meeting, we would have seminars where we would talk about women representation, implicit bias training, uh, bystander training, microaggressions, trying to start the conversation about women and our value to the field and to the specialty. And so to be recognized for that work by my peers is really a tremendous honor. And I am so grateful for many, many, many people who helped in this journey. And uh, this, this award is not just for me, but also for all the future uh, women head neck surgeons. Yeah, I love that. Is there any piece of advice that you would you would give to women and minority students who are interested in otolaryngology, particularly those who who are feeling, as you said, the feelings of self doubt and not really feeling like they are good enough? Well, the first thing I would say is that you are good enough, and you are enough, and you're not like too much this or too little that. You are who you are, you, you are incredible, you have lots of great strengths. And just because some people don't recognize that does not mean that you don't have it. And I think that is one of the strongest lessons that I've learned myself is that just because people don't recognize it doesn't mean it's not in you. And it will become evident to others when the occasion arises. And the other thing I'd like to say is that you're going to be working really, really hard, no matter what field you pick. And therefore, pick something you really love. Don't pick something just because it has an easier acceptance rate or an easier residency or a more, there are more people in it that you think that you might like to be with. That might be a reason. But the important thing is that you really love what you do. Because there's no sense in spending any time doing something that you don't love and aren't, aren't passionate about. Time is our most precious resource. So don't waste your time doing something that is just kind of half-hearted 
or half-ass, you know, put everything that you love into each day. It doesn't mean you have to be 100% accurate every day. I'm not saying that, but do something that you're passionate about and that you love. And the, the length of time it takes to finish your training, the difficulties in getting in will be superseded by your happiness and your fulfillment in that field. Yeah, there's, um, there's been multiple times during this interview where I got chills and that is definitely one of them. So thank you for all of that great advice. Um, are there any final thoughts or any last bits of advice that you have for any of the medical students listening to this podcast? You know, I think that each of us are so unique and we have so many strengths and also opportunities to get better. And I think that humility is a really big, important piece of what we don't always acknowledge. And sometimes we view humility as a weakness because we're not coming forward and saying, yes, you must do this and follow me and do it this way or the highway. And we come across so decisive. And if we are somewhat indecisive or thoughtful, that can be misinterpreted as being weak. Or if we're humble, that means that we don't have the fortitude to keep going. I would encourage each of you to embrace all these different feelings, all these seemingly disparate thoughts that you have, because that means that you're really, really thinking and being thoughtful and being creative in how you want to move forward in this world. And we need more people like you who are thoughtful, who are creative, who are passionate, who are compassionate, who are empathetic, because we definitely need all of that and kindness. And that's what's going to differentiate you. Not so much what you got on your USMLA scores, not what you got on the shelf score, on the shelf exam. What really is going to differentiate you is how you treat people and how they remember you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think I can say anything to sum up what you said any better than the way that you said it. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for all of the guidance that you gave to myself and to our listeners today. And thank you sincerely for joining me on this podcast today. Thank you everyone for tuning into this week's episode. We heard from Dr. Chen about her career as a head and neck endocrine surgeon, her incredible work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and her mentorship for women in otolaryngology. Be sure to follow Sundays with Sima on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest guests. <laughs>